we're reading this book together, and um, Lord willing, um, going to be all challenged by it. Uh, we picked the series on purpose because we know that uh, that we need to be provoked in our spiritual growth, continually um, edged forward in our walk with the Lord to try to uh, continually be um, drawn more into the likeness of Jesus Christ and to be longing for the things of God in heaven. And so uh, I think worldliness is a snare that gets most of us, and it's often one that's in our blind spot. So um, when we talk about worldliness, it is a term that has been both used and often abused in the church uh, life for many decades now. So we're going to try to, this morning, try to clarify what is meant by this term so that you can begin to evaluate its presence and its um, attractiveness and temptation in your own life, because like I said, it often is in our blind spot. Um, so in First John chapter 2, we're going to look at just three verses primarily, and in this morning, I want you to be thinking as I'm reading this verse, I'm going to ask you some prompting questions to start us off, and I want your interaction. Um, when, I, when I say, what is worldliness, or I ask you what comes to your mind when I say define worldliness, I want you to be thinking about some ideas. So I just want to create like a thought, a thought cloud, basically, any uh, reaction to the word worldliness. I just want to see where we are in the room, what you think about it when I say um, define worldliness, and we'll, we'll have, uh, try to, take, to collect some answers from that and see what, what emerges from that. All right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. We're going to begin right there uh, with John's words. He is basically in, first, in chapter 2, he's just been telling us to love the brethren. This is one of the distinctive characteristics of a Christian is that they have a God-wrought, spirit-enabled love for their Christian brethren, for the church. And so there's a lot of instruction here preceding this passage, talking about to love your brothers in Christ and love your sisters in Christ, okay? So there's a lot of that. And in, contra- in contrast, he's going to kind of turn a corner and show the contrasting side of loving, for, loving the brethren, loving the church, and the contrasting uh, not loving of the world, Okay. So that we're kind of seeing the two ideas pitted to each, against each other in a very contrasting way. It's intentional uh, by the Apostle and um, by the Holy Spirit here. So verse 15, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Um, if, anyone, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Father, we have already prayed this morning to kind of begin our time, but I do ask especially now for your um, your guidance, uh, your leading in this discussion as we uh, embark on this together as a church family. I pray that you would show us areas in our um, in our thinking and in our lifestyle that are mismatched with this passage. We, we do desire to become less worldly, and more godly, uh, more invested in the things of God's kingdom, and less attached to the things of this worldly kingdom. And we ask, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a heart attitude of love for you and uh, love for uh, the things of God. We ask this by your help, by your grace, in your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this morning, let's start with some uh, questions to kind of prompt some discussion. So when I ask you to define worldliness, give me some ideas about what comes to mind when I just say worldliness. Right, wrong, this is just sort of what you reacted to when you heard that we're teaching on worldliness this, this summer. 
indulgence in material things. So kind of like materialism, right? Being materialistic, the things that the world offers us. Okay, it's good. That's right on the right in the lane of what we're talking about. What else? Okay, discontentment. That's interesting. Why why would you suggest that? Discontentment. Okay. Okay. Growing discontent with the things that we've accumulated in the world. Yeah. Okay. Discontentment is a temptation, kind of companion with this idea of worldliness. Good. Good suggestion. Any others? I'd say pop culture. Okay. Pop culture. The worldly secular culture distinguished from Christian biblical culture that's obviously very different and distinct. Pop culture is something that the secular world celebrates and uh, there comes with that a whole bunch of philosophies and thinking and values and way that the culture perceives what life's all about versus what the world is, what we're told the world is all about by the scriptures, right? So that's good. So, very good. Anything else? These are good answers. Actions that move you away from holiness. Okay. That's, that's a great observation. Okay, worldliness is the opposite on the spectrum. If you're drawing a spectrum, you have worldliness, so on the other end of that would be holiness, which means set-apartedness, more and more set-apartedness and purity from the world, right? So that if you're looking at a spectrum, activities that take you toward worldliness would be opposed to cultivating holiness in your life. Good, good point. Anything else? I'm encouraged by those answers. I'm glad that you're thinking that way. Um, I have grown up in a uh, in a church all my life, pretty much, and have had a lot of teaching on holiness and a lot of teaching on worldliness, and not all of it, um, I'm sad to say, has always been with those types of ideas in mind when we're talking about them. They've oftentimes gotten off off those uh, tangents and, and kind of gotten into some uh, areas that I think bordered on what I would call legalism or the idea that by having a certain, by abstaining from certain categories of sins, certain certain sins that are identified and earmarked as worldly sins, by avoiding those particular worldly sins, I can ensure that I'm not becoming worldly. Anybody heard that? Okay. You may have been in, uh, heard preaching. Maybe you have fallen into that ditch, thinking that if I just avoid these certain categories of sins, then I'll be okay. I'm not worldly at all. And I want to challenge you from the chapter in front of us this morning, that worldliness is not a category list of sins, of do's and don'ts that someone manufactured arbitrarily and foists upon the church. Worldliness is a heart attitude. It originates. John locates the problem of this area of our sin is in the heart. He says love, not the Loving is an action of the heart, right? It's a desire to long to be like the world in its thoughts, in its values, in its philosophy, and its overall outlook on life. Worldliness creeps into us in some of the most insidious and subtle ways, and we don't even identify it because we're looking at the, we're just making sure we match up to the checklist of, are we doing this certain activity or not? That's a false idea of worldliness. We want to be looking at our hearts. What are we attracted to? What are we desiring? In fact, the latter portion of this, um, this passage, if you look here, um, verse 16, um, he talks about desires that are reigning in us, that are um, that are causing us to be drawn away from God and into the world. It's a desire thing. These things are resident within our hearts, this heart attitude. For all that is in the world, the lust, there it is, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So primarily, we're talking about a heart attitude 
Um, I would ask more of these if I had more time. But how does this warning about worldliness strike you? Does it make sense to you when John says this? What do you, what do you think about that statement right in verse 15? Where it says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You think John is overstating something here? Or is he actually putting a pretty intense subject right in front of us to discuss this morning? If you have a love, for, a love that drives your motivations, influences your thinking, calls your heart to, to uh, loyalty to the world then you cannot be one who loves the Father. He puts these in two entirely different spheres, doesn't he? Someone who's gripped with the love of the world cannot also have the love of the Father. That's pretty, that's pretty much cutting it straight, isn't it? John paints a line down the middle of the room, as it were, and says you're either on this side or this side. So it's pretty stark contrast. And I, I think it's um, something that begs our attention it, um, to, to really assess in our own life. Has the world gripped your heart? And if it does, how would you know? What are the sort of things that you can evaluate to make sure that worldliness hasn't gripped your heart? Our relationship to the world has been a subject of great conflict throughout church history, by the way. I was hoping Ben Eswine would be here because he'd be able to support me. You are here, Ben. Okay. All right. Excellent. This is almost like perfect. So in church history, the church has wrestled with its place in the world, hasn't it, for a long time. In fact, um, after the Emperor Constantine came to power, and uh, there was a great merging of the secular with the sacred. Uh, a- after 300 years of persecution of the church, suddenly there's a Christian emperor on the throne who sanctions the, the Christian church, and the world flocks into the church to gain the favor of the emperor and to gain the privileges and benefits of being part of a Christian society. So as the church becomes more secular... There was a response to this in uh, quite, a different, quite a few different ways. Um, there was this or- origin of this idea of monasticism. You know what a monk is, right, or a, a monastic? The monastics were um, ones who, after having uh, felt the influence of the world and the temptations of the world rushing into the church, they felt the best response to the world is to e- e- evacuate the church, to have an exodus out into the deserts, and to live in live live apart from human society, thinking that worldliness meant that if I could just abstain from contact with the world, and I could um, dominate my body with its passions, and uh, I could remove these temptations that are present before me by simply withdrawing and isolating from the world. Uh, Justo Gonzalez says this, Thus, at the very time when churches in large cities were fled by thousands demanding baptism, there was an exodus, a veritable exodus of other thousands who sought beatitude and solitude. Um, One of those was uh, St. Anthony. St. Anthony was probably the the one to begin this monastic movement. And his idea of withdrawing from society revealed to us that worldliness is not something that's external to us. Uh, it cannot be escaped ultimately through isolation, body discipline, or self-denial or isolation. And there's no little amount of artwork created in medieval in the medieval church about the temptations of Saint Anthony as he was a monk out in the deserts of Egypt, in the Egyptian Egypt area. For many of them, uh, he felt no matter where he retreated to, the demons that tormented his soul followed him wherever he went. The temptations and the lusts and the desires he could never be fully rid of them. So the problem with worldliness we learn in church history from men like this is 
that worldliness does not lie external to us. It's a much deeper and much more insidious problem than just having external contact with the world. Jesus even prayed for us in John 17. I pray that those who I leave in the world would be not, they will be hated, he says, but they will be, um, that they will not be part of the world. John chapter 17, Jesus' entire high, high priestly prayers about the way a Christian would be living in the world yet separate from it. And by God's grace, he would provide that way. This monastic idea, I think, eventually, it does morph along through history. I'm kind of making a huge leap here. Um, but there's extended ideas so that we can kind of draw parallels here. I know. Sorry, Ben. We just, we just jumped in a time machine and just gave you, like, huge disorientation jumping through hundreds of years. Something you said I hadn't really thought about. You about Constantine. So you talk about fourth century now. The parallels to even our approach to Christianity and secularism, basically how back in the day, since he Christianized the empire, not only did he sanctify unholiness by trying to Christianize uh, secular practices and then at the same time the, the society as a whole wanting to be in a place of approval and in line with the empire come and flood the church and I think boy just think of all the parallels to where mm-hmm. our society is at mm-hmm. uh, the danger of thinking first of all that holiness is going to be top down from a government so it's yeah. like in our government, yeah. through laying hands on, you know, they, we think that somehow there's merit, and I'm not saying there's not merit some of these things, but like you know, our justices who lay hands on the Bible, you know, <laughs> you know, as they're sworn in, or the president, or prayers before inaugurations, right. and the discrepancy with trying to Christianize ungodly, wicked people, and somehow that makes it that makes it better. Yeah, and so. What a, what a disservice. Constantly, like, of course, it helped take away persecution from the church. And that was a yes. Good thing. But the flood of unbelievers who came in and were Christianized, we don't see much difference today in people trying to they see America as a Christian nation. Yeah. We Christianize the top down. How how dangerous is the thought to think that our, our governments are going to Christianize this nation? Right. And in doing so, basically, you have a flood of unbelieving people who join the churches and have churches full of unbelievers. And in the process, not just dilute, but you, yes. see, you see many. So it's interesting to see in history that that pivotal point with Constantine in the fourth century and find it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, um, by doing that, he introduced a far worse threat yes. to the church, didn't he? Right. Rather than Christianizing the secular culture, he actually uh, allowed worldliness to seep throughout the ranks of the church and taught us many. Uh, perspectives. It, it, it caused this perspective of that the world is, uh, we need to kind of communicate this Christian Christendom kingdom upon the world of society around us rather than seeing us as we're painted in scriptures as a called out assembly. Actually, separate. Actually, the dark ages until the Reformation. In other words, it, it didn't lead to Reformation. That's right. It did. Yes. Um, Good, good observation there. And, and there's going to be a there's a thing Mahaney says in this book that is striking. He talks uh, talks about the threat that Constantine introduced, but that this actually that while churches in the world, I'll just go ahead and kind of preface it with this: churches in the world around us are flourishing in a state of government persecution. Churches are driven underground, and the many of those believers can't op- open meet openly like we do and publicly. 
And in those cases, persecution had what kind of effect upon the church? If you look at them historically, they flourished, right? As the, as the fiery sword of persecution hit the church, embers scattered and churches were flaming everywhere. There were people coming to Christ and churches were healthy. Whereas when you remove that persecution element, it introduces this steady decay of the church as we grow worldly and less influential and less, um, less ability to shine the light of the gospel clearly with some gospel clarity. So I think our relationship with the world was again, again, just again showcased in the 1950s and 60s when there was a certain strain of fundamentalism that came about in reaction to many social and cultural revolutions happening in the 60s. Uh, many fundamentalist pastors began to theme their preaching about evils of certain haircuts and facial hair on men and uh, preached against the evils of women's makeup and card playing and mixed swimming and theater attendance. And uh, this became quite common. I remember sitting in a youth meeting 20 years ago. Remember this, honey? Sitting in a youth meeting where the pastor got worked up. I mean, red face, sweating, stomping about the evils of teenagers wearing flip-flops during an altar call. I mean, he preached 25 minutes on a sermon like this and thought that they were just so worldly for responding to this altar call with flip-flops. He couldn't stand the sound of flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop as people came down the aisle. <laughs> so this became a very huge part of fundamentalist, some fundamentalist strains of, of evangelical Christianity. And this idea that worldliness is something that uh, is external to us, something that uh, the posture, this ascetic posture... The idea that we're going to deny anything that would bring um, joy or happiness or delight in the world. We're going to withdraw from the world and we're going to see the world as something we should condemn. And we should have strict abstinence from whatever arbitrary list of worldly sins demonstrate that we... So that we could have this badge that we could carry and say, this is the sign of our devotion to God. That we abstain from this list of categories of sins that we should avoid. I mean, of course, I grew up in this type of church. We called it mixed bathing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're not taking a bath. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're swimming. <laughs> There's no soap. There's no. I will say, you know, for those of us who are older and grew up under this, I mean, you know, we've had to learn and grow because I'll be honest, when we're on this side, and like MacArthur says, we stamp Christian and grace on everything, mm-hmm. and yeah. some people could do everything that's true you know we have to grow because it's hard to see when you raised under this some of the stuff that we see today and i know we have freedom in christ but sometimes i think wow we just yeah. flip to the other side indeed when you look at some of the things that are going on in the churches today so um you know we all need to be gracious toward each other because some of you are younger and didn't grow in this yes so when you see some of us a little shocked right. some of the things you know be gracious with us as we're trying to understand indeed society has changed Good but, point. Yes. Can you give me that reference? <laughs> this is not a this is not a book recommendation. This is just I'm just showing you this book was on the bookshelf at the school I went to and I Pastor always preached against women cutting their hair until his wife cut his. <laughs> then he never preached. Very convenient, right? Well, I will say, in defense of some of that, because I grew up the exact way, that if you look back at that, because I grew up, I mean, she, Heather and I were in a church where the pastor said, uh, a member of this choir, and I did used to sing in the choir, those of you that. Wow. Um, <laughs> what? Should wow. never be seen coming out of the movie theater. 
Mm. So that was my last night yeah. choir. But, <laughs> <laughs> but some of the things that they used to rail against as far as the culture, entertainment and that, I mean, we're here today. Yeah, fair point. This is good. So many people back then didn't stand up and say, hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, fair, so, I mean I'm fair not point. defending any of that because, I, I mean, I grew up in it. But okay. I think about that a lot because when I flip on the TV and I see what's acceptable today, yes, it's acceptable today because so many of us didn't say anything back right. then. And I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be legal. No, I don't think you are. I think you're. But we can't throw everything out. Yeah. Because there was some good there. Indeed. I mean, I think the remedy that they proposed wasn't quite yeah. matching with the problem. The remedy was let's offer up these this standard of conduct, this code of conduct, and it became external. Okay. Were they right to react to some of those secular vices in the way they did? Yes. Were they a danger to the church? Absolutely. Were they right to bring them to the attention of the flock and warn the sheep with tears and, and energy? And, and Yes, they were right to do that. But the, the remedy for that was not reaching into their heart and saying, you have a love for the world. The world has gripped your heart. Okay? You, are, you are being strung along. You're changing. You don't even realize it. You're growing dull and your conscience isn't clear. Uh, in preaching to the conscience and to the heart was not what was done. It was instead preached external standards. And I think you're absolutely made an excellent point. It's very fair to keep that in mind. That's why when you talk about worldliness, we have to walk this bit of a tightrope somewhat. Uh, they won't call it a tightrope. It's like in the Army. Uh, if you've ever seen the Army basic training, sometimes they'll have what's called a, I don't know if this is what they call it, but it's like a three-rope bridge. Have you ever seen the three-rope bridge? Over a long open riverway, they'll have three ropes. They'll have one for each hand, and you'll walk a tightrope like this. You walk across the bridge. It's very important to have all three ropes tension on tension, right? If you don't have those three ropes, you get twisted, flipped, and thrown into the, into the water below. There are three truths we're going to have to keep in mind, and I'm going to get to them in just a minute, that you have to have them all in tension. Give up one of them, and you're going to plunge out of control. Okay? You're going to be legalistic, or you're going to be libertine. Okay, you gotta you gotta gotta hold all three of these together and don't give up in any one of them. There's four dangerous reactions I think that um, I'm summarizing here. The one reaction to this verse is that many people just dismiss it. This is an avoider's approach where they just say, you know what, I'm just gonna act like my this does, this verse doesn't challenge my life and I'm just gonna ignore it, live my life any way I want, and uh, assume that uh, that I'll be okay. Um, so they functionally remove these verses from Scripture by ignoring their significance to their lives. And they do this because it's difficult and demanding to implement and evaluate your life in this way. Calling, uh, calling you, these verses call us to swear off our loyalty to the world. And so we prefer to live our lives like this, just doesn't, this verse doesn't exist. But are we, are we conscious, conscientiously able to do that as Christians? Are you, are you to be able to just dismiss portions of Scripture at will? No, not if you're a follower of Christ. Remember, John says, if you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father. And I would encourage you, if that's your approach to this passage, you need to give serious attention to whether you're in the faith, even at all. If you don't have the, father, if you don't have the love of the Father, you're not, uh, you, you're not, uh, you're not able to uh, practice this. So be careful of that, the, the dismissal approach. Okay? The second one is the distortion approach. That's the ascetic approach that we were talking about, we talked about at length, uh, the idea of taking this passage, distorting it, 
and teaching worldliness as just a form of external expression. We just think of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. Uh, if, I dis- if I don't participate in certain activities, I can be, I'm not considered worldly. That's a wrong approach. Thirdly, there's a, what I call the despising it approach. This is those who say, in reaction to worldliness, in rea- sorry, in reaction to the ascetics, who found that preaching unconscionable and distasteful. They ran to the other extreme and became libertine, or basically they would not refuse any kind of indulgence to themselves at all. I think Martha brought up that idea, to indulge in whatever your, pleases and delights your eyes and your heart. And so libertines or antinomians basically had the approach that I should not refuse my heart anything which God has given and uh, which I feel like I have freedom to enjoy and participate in. And in that sense, they began to dabble with worldly things. The things of the world gripped their heart. The hearts which love the world and the things contained in it, and therefore they became um, basically headlong ensnared in worldliness. This approach inevitably leads us to this. In- oh, sorry, um, that's not right. On the opposite side of the spectrum, this, Christ- this limiting or restricting Christian liberty was seen to be the greatest evil to have been committed. So, if you tried to restrict Christian liberty, there was a response, a reaction, a resentment, a reluctance to be um, taught, told that certain things were off the menu as a Christian. And any time that was suggested or hinted at, or even in the tone of the message, pastors would fear being called legalist. And when, in fact, they were not in- intentional on trying to say, your favor with God depends on your ability to obey these things, they were actually saying that these things are, are killing off your zeal for the Lord. They're killing off your ability to walk with the Lord in a pleasing way. They're, they're, they're slowly destroying you bit by bit. Your heart is growing cold toward the things of God. So there were those who despised it. They became the antinomians. And then there was a fourth approach, which I think is very common, maybe even here this morning, the diminishing approach. These are the people who are arrogant, who think, this great verse, man, amen, brother, you preach it. That's right. You tell them people what worldliness is all about. I have no, I'm not impacted whatsoever. My life is above board, and I have no concerns when you preach this. My conscience is clear, and they have the attitude that worldliness seems to be a non-factor for them. Now, that's a problem too, isn't it? Because no matter how long you walk with the Lord, and you live your life in this world, on this earth, your heart is constantly lured and seducted, seducted, seduced is the word. I'm trying to, sorry about my words there. Seduced um, by the attractive elements of this world, the things that are in it. How many of us, how many of you can literally say, I'm so spiritual, I saw a Corvette drive by me, this beautiful brand new model Corvette, and I didn't take like, didn't desire that for myself and want that so badly that I was almost willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Yeah, I, I, you, you don't say that? Okay, maybe you don't like Chevys or whatever. I I, there might it's be a category. Financial reality. I'm just saying. Financial reality. You look at your checkbook and, well, you look at your checkbook and say, no, nah, that ain't going I can say that because I don't want anything I can't fit in. <laughs> okay. True. There is something. There is something, though, that has, has passed your glance and passed for your eyes, and you said, man, I want that. i got to have it. And you have, not, you have descended into a covetous mentality about it. So at some point, we cannot look at this passage and just look at say, man, you preach that to others. Realize that this is, a, this is a malady that afflicts us all because of our heart. 
So take a personal assessment of yourself right now. Everyone in this room may be able to fit in one or a combination of these basic attitudes or profiles that I'm representing here. And for yourself, think about which one do you best, op- what you best fit into and maybe perhaps most of the time operate from. And what do you think are the vulnerabilities of each approach? What, how does each one of those fail with respect to loving the world? Because every single one of them has a specific, specific problem there. I've got to move because of time. Um, so why do you think you gravitate to that particular category? That's worthy of some reflection this week. I know growing up in this, as I did, I tend to gravitate toward the ascetic approach. I want to, anything I feel that could be dirty or contaminating to my testimony, I immediately swear off and I find, I, I condemn it and I, I don't test it by biblical criteria. I test it according to my background or what I've been told. I don't run to the scriptures and evaluate it, sift it through scripture. So that's something I personally wrestle with. But these th- this is the, th- the tension I was talking about earlier with the three-rope bridge. You've got to keep these three things in, tr- in harmony in your theology as you think about the world. Number one, you cannot escape the fact that God made this world. Even in its sinful, fallen state, the things that God made, we are told that everything that God created is good and that they're not to be refused, and they'd be received with thankfulness and gratefulness. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 10, we are warned against those who would come into the church who would forbid things like food and marriage and sex, material prosperity, and other things that are in this world that actually come from God. So churches who would preach on Poverty, the, the, the need to take vows of poverty, a vow of celibacy, um, the, the uh, abstaining from meats, uh, abstaining from food. These, this, was a, this is a heresy that we are warned about in, in, by Paul. So we have to understand that the world, the word, the term world, the word cosmos in the Greek in the New Testament is used in three different senses. I've highlighted them here. Sometimes when the Bible refers to the world, it's referring just to the created order, the universe, and all of its contents. And that's the sense in which Paul's referring to it in Timothy 4. There's another thing we need to keep in tension at the same time, that God himself loves this world. Not in a sense, not in a sinful sense, not in the sense that our text before us this morning is warning us about, but God indeed loves the world, that is, the inhabitants of this world. Every single person in this world, God has a love for. Has, has, his, he has loved us so much that he gave us his only begotten son. That imply, that, that's a beautiful and stunning depiction of his love, isn't it? Inarguably, God loves this world. So, so should we, right? The last chapter of this book, you're going to hear for four weeks where we're going to warn you about worldliness. And the fifth week, it's not a change that you're going to think, man, that might sound like a change in the theme, but it's not. The fifth week that we talk is going to be about how to love this world properly, to love it evangelistically, to love it the way God loves the world without being drawn in by a love for the world. Okay? So we have to be careful. We nuance our words very carefully as we go through this. Thirdly, we have to recognize that God in the scripture stands opposed to the world. We think this seems out of harmony with the first two, but it's not. God stands opposed to the world. And in this sense, when he uses the word world, it's the way it's being used here in 1 John, it's that he stands opposed to the systems of fallen humanity. 
human philosophy, human values, cultural ethos, the way that the, the society and the culture sets itself up in arrangement against God to war against him. God is opposed to that. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James warns us that friendship with the world, in this sense, means you're an enemy of God. You're hostile against God. So there's, we have to keep all three of these together, because if you give up one and you don't want to think about God opposing the world, you're going to become a sappy, sentimental, thoughtless, indiscerning Christian who just wants to love everybody and will become all things to all men and never have any thought of what the world is doing to your soul. If you forget that God loves the world and that God created the world and made things in this world that you should enjoy, you're going to become this hard, rock ribs, you know, crusty old ascetic Christian, okay? You can't have, you can't give up any of these. All three must be held in complete tension because the Bible puts them in that way. Does that make sense? Okay? You've got to have all three of these. And you have to be patient when you look at the scriptures in what sense is, is this word world being used here. And so the chapter before us, it's talking about the world systems. The insidious danger of worldliness. What are your thoughts when you read about Demas? Remember Demas at the end of chapter 4, verse Timothy. Paul writes this just heart-wrenching comment about Demas, who he loved, who's a beloved minister in the gospel with him. We read about him in Colossians, the epistle of Colossians. You read about him in the, the epistle to Philemon. This man was a faithful missionary of the gospel with Paul for years faithful, dependable guy that Paul looked at and said, that's the guy I depend on. I work with him. He's my co-laborer in the Lord. And that's the guy we read about in 1 Timothy as Paul's writing his final words before he goes to, to, to lose his head and be heddled. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has, has departed from me to Thessalonica. That guy was the guy no one probably would have expected he would have ever deserted. What are the thoughts about, what do you think when you think about Demas? If Demas deserted for the love of this present world, if Demas could fall for the love of this present world, what does that say about us? What does it say about you? Me. Are we any of us immune to this? If you're an avoider, does this cause you to reconsider the stakes at which John's trying to warn us? If you're an ascetic, does it surprise you that Paul attributes Demas's desertion not to loose personal standards, but to a heart that's been enamored with the present world? Paul says it's his heart. He fell in love with this present world. And if you're an antinomian, someone who likes their Christian liberty and use that as a blanket excuse for indulging all kinds of worldly sin, does it shock you that such a little thing as leaving to go to Thessalonica, just a few miles away, that that constitutes the, is tantamount to a spiritual desertion. Does that surprise you? That the small things that are done are actually bigger than you realize? So when you look at this, you have to realize worldliness is so, so insidious. Before we, before we desert, we drift. Now, I, I, I thought I was going to use an actual picture from Sunday morning service up here, but of one of you guys, no, of myself. Um, but we all... We all do this, don't we? We get drifty. But this is an important point to make. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't obvious at first. Demas didn't go from disciple to deserter in a day. No, it was gradual. It was weakening over time. It was an eventual conforming to this world. People can be attending church, singing the songs, 
sitting there apparently listening to sermons, no different on the outside than they've always been. But inside, they're drifting. You want something that will just knock your socks off? You should go look at this YouTube, this YouTube video of a, of a preacher named David Wilkerson. A long time ago, you know, maybe some of you know who he was. Crossing the switchblade, right? Um, haunts me to this day. He preaches a message called, You're Changing. He looks into the eyes of his people and says, There's something wrong. Pastorally, I see that you no longer have the zeal that you once had for the Lord. You, you no longer desire to be among God's people. You're finding joys in all the places in which this world has offered you false, alluring things, and, and, you've, and you've found joy in them, and you're changing. You don't even realize it. And that's how it works, guys. Worldliness su- su- sucks you in, and it's so deadening to your senses, you don't even realize you're being caught in the, caught in the riptide and being pulled out. So watch your heart. Nine symptoms of onsetting worldliness. Attend. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get to them all. I'll give you these notes. Listen, I've got to let you go, but I'm just telling you. Please, give this passage a real close look over this, year, this week. Look at your own heart. Are there areas in which your heart is drawn away from God? Are there times that you remember where you were more interested in the things of God and more on fire for him, more interested in his word than, than you are now? If so, that might be indicators of a slow, um, gradual slipping away into worldly, worldly thinking. So many other themes that these men are going to bring to you in the next couple of weeks. I hope you'll be here for all of them because they're going to address the issues like, I think next week is media, and then there's music, and then there's modesty, and there's materialism. There's these four weeks we're going to talk about each of these four things and how they uniquely present to us temptations for our hearts to love the things of the world, love the world and its things instead of having a cultivated love for God. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being in your word this morning. I pray that you'll bless us as we go from here. May this stir our thinking in our heart. I pray that you'll guide us in our study. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.